Chapter 8 of The Life of Philip Melanchthon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Mayer. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Friedrich Lederhose. Translated by Gottlob Frederick Krotel. Chapter 8 His Labors for the Church and Schools. Although Melanchthon's professional activity was principally directed to the education of good teachers and pastors for the schools and churches, yet the confidence enjoyed by him and his splendid reputation, which bore his name far beyond the confines of Saxony, soon afforded him an opportunity to exert a very salutary influence in the erection of new and improvement of established schools. Even before he had together with Luther arranged the school in Eisleben, and also one in Magdeburg, of which Krusiger was rector, he was invited to Nuremberg by Jerome Baumgartner towards the close of the year 1524 in order to establish a gymnasium and to act as its rector. But nothing could induce him to leave Wittenberg. He therefore declined the offer of an appointment in Nuremberg, although he had the establishment of this institution of learning much at heart. One year after the invitation to visit Nuremberg, he undertook the journey with his friend Camerarius. This celebrated imperial city, which was then called the Eye of Germany, attracted him on many accounts, for it had an eye open to the gospel, and numbered among its inhabitants many of the most distinguished minds with whom Melanchthon was intimately connected. Among these were Perkheimer, Baumgartner, Lazarus Spengler, Ebner, and Nutzel. He entered Nuremberg on the 12th of November, 1525, he communicated his views in regard to the arrangement of the school and proposed able men as teachers. Camerarius, his beloved friend, was appointed rector of the school. Other men also accepted the call extended to them. In the following year we find Melanchthon, true to his promise, in Nuremberg again. He formally opened this learned institution with a Latin address May 23, 1526. In this address he uttered weighty words concerning the necessity and utility of the sciences. He concluded with the appropriate prayer, I pray Christ that he may assist your important work by his grace, and that he may accompany your intentions and the diligence of those who shall study here with his blessing. Among his friends in Nuremberg he also numbered the celebrated painter Albert Dürer, whose heart was also with the work of the Reformation. He spent a few very pleasant days with him and the rest of his friends, but returned to Wittenberg in June. Important business awaited him there. But in the middle of July he was seized with a severe illness, and his physician considered his recovery doubtful. But the Lord could not spare him yet. In the beginning of the year 1526 he was formally appointed to deliver lectures on theology, although he remonstrated against it. His salary was increased to 200 florins, but the most important duty in which he was engaged at that time was in participating in the visitation of the schools and churches in Saxony. It may well be imagined that these were in a miserable condition. The apostolic doctrine which was proclaimed in Wittenberg, with apostolical power, had not found an entrance everywhere. In some of the schools and churches they still pertinaciously adhered to the beaten path. In other quarters it was patchwork, a new patch upon an old garment. There was one case of a minister who preached the gospel in his principal church, but read mass in the under-parochial church where they required a different practice. 
the confusion in doctrine, church customs, and church treasuries was truly deplorable. Luther did not complain without reason. Help, dear Lord, what frequent distress have I seen, because the common people, particularly in villages, know nothing at all of Christian doctrine, and it is but too true that many ministers are unskillful and unfit to teach. And yet all are called Christians, are baptized, and enjoy the holy sacraments, and do not even know the Lord's Prayer, or the Creed, or the Ten Commandments, and live on like the brutes. Luther had taken this distress to heart long before, and had earnestly appealed to court, to institute a visitation of all the schools and churches in the land. The elector John, who was greatly concerned for the spread of the truth, ordered such a visitation. It took place in 1527, and was a real work of necessity, but at the same time full of blessings. Different commissions were appointed for different parts of the country. Melanchthon was ordered to visit Thuringia, accompanied by Jerome Scherf, Erasmus of Haugwitz, and John of Planitz. Great indeed was the spiritual distress discovered by them. Melanchthon often went out and wept, as he writes himself, What can be offered in justification that these poor people have hitherto been left in such great ignorance and stupidity? My heart bleeds when I regard this misery. Often, when we have completed the visitation of a place, I go to one side and pour forth my distress in tears. And who would not mourn to see the faculties of man so utterly neglected, and that his soul, which is able to learn and grasp so much, does not even know anything of its Creator and Lord? However, the elector's instructions to the visitors enjoined it upon them to proceed in the most lenient manner. They obeyed strictly, and no doubt accomplished more in this way than if they had fallen upon everything in the stormy spirit of a Karlstadt. Melanchthon was also commissioned to prepare an instruction for the ministers in the electorate of Saxony. This called forth a little volume with the title, Instruction of the Members of the Visitation to the Pastors in the Electorate of Saxony. It was handed to Luther for inspection, who was entirely satisfied with it, and therefore made but few alterations. He added a preface to the book, in which he explained the necessity of the visitation. This volume may be called the first confession of faith of the Lutheran Church, and on this account already deserves to be better known. As might be expected from Melanchthon, it is conceived in a spirit of great moderation, and whilst it gives prominence to the principal doctrines of the true Church, treats the opposite opinions with great forbearance. Let us select a few passages from this book of instruction. The first chapter treats of doctrine. It says, But how many now only speak of the forgiveness of sins, and nothing, or very little, of repentance? And yet there is no forgiveness of sin without repentance and forgiveness of sins cannot be understood without repentance. And when we preach forgiveness of sins without repentance, it will come to pass that the people will believe they have already obtained forgiveness of sins, and will thereby become secure and careless. Therefore we have instructed and exhorted pastors that, according to their duty, they should preach the whole gospel, and not one part without the other. In the article Of the Ten Commandments, he requires that the people be brought to a knowledge of their sins by an exhibition of the law and of their sins, and proceeds thus. Besides this, it will be profitable to preach of faith in this manner, that whosoever feels pain and sorrow for sin should believe that his sins are forgiven him, not because of any merit of his own, but for Christ's sake. But the instruction always reverts to this, that faith is nothing without repentance. Where there is no repentance, there is a painted faith. 
After having thus given prominence to the two first parts of the Christian life, he proceeds, The third part of the Christian life is to do good works, such as chastity, to love our neighbor, to help him, not to lie, nor cheat, nor to steal, nor to murder, nor to be revengeful, not to take vengeance into his own hands. He then enters upon a consideration of the Ten Commandments. In treating the Second Commandment, he requires the true Christian prayer. This section fully treats of the manner in which we ought to pray and renounces all abuses. Whatever it may be, we are to seek help from God alone. The Fourth Commandment is treated at length and proceeds to show how children should treat parents, and parents their children, and particularly how subjects should conduct themselves towards the government. An entire section is devoted to the consideration of tribulations as a part of good works. They are to be careful to teach that all tribulations come from God, but also that God is to be called upon in the midst of them. In considering the sacrament of baptism, the lawfulness of infant baptism is proved from its antitype, circumcision. They should perform the ceremony in the German language, in order that those present might understand its meaning. Here, too, they are directed to repentance and faith, of the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. It teaches that in the bread is the true body of Christ, and in the wine the true blood of Christ, and mentions two of the principal passages of the Bible. The miracle is not wrought by the merits of the priest, but because Christ has so ordered it that his body is present wherever men commune. They should teach in the most decided manner that both kinds, bread and wine, should be distributed, yet no one who, because of the weakness and fear of his conscience, could not receive both kinds, should be forced to receive both. Under such circumstances, the pastor should offer but one. It treats fully of true Christian repentance. Added to this is the section of true Christian confession. It says, Papal confession, namely, to rehearse all our sins, is not commanded, for it is impossible to do it. Yet everyone going to communion should be previously examined by the pastor. The article of true Christian satisfaction for sin shows that Christ alone has made satisfaction for our sin. In the chapter of Human Church Regulations, the pastors are exhorted to insist upon the principal matters in their sermons. Sundays and festival days are to be observed. Yea, they even suffer apostles' and saints' days to remain. But on the latter they are to permit labor. But it is not their intention hereby to establish or commend the invocations and intercessions of the saints, for Christ alone is the mediator who intercedes for us. Matters relating to marriage are also briefly considered. Of free will it says that we are able to perform worldly piety and good works by our own strength, given us and preserved for this purpose by God. This is the righteousness of the flesh. But they also teach... Man by his own power cannot purify his heart and produce divine gifts such as true repentance from sin, a true and unfeigned fear of God, true faith, cordial love, chastity, an absence of revenge, true patience, earnest prayer, freedom from covetousness. Concerning Christian liberty, the errors of the vulgar are set aside, and liberty in Christ exhibited. We are also freed from the ceremonies of the Old Testament. The Turks are not forgotten, and it also mentions how the daily exercise in church is to be conducted. Would that it were so still in our churches. Concerning true Christian excommunication, they teach that it is to be employed against those persons who live in open vices after they have been admonished several times. They are not to be permitted to come to the Lord's Supper, 
but they are not prevented from hearing preaching. Overseers, called superintendents, selected from the pastors, were appointed in particular districts. Besides this, this instruction of the visitation devotes a full chapter to schools. The commission of visitation labored in this mild, conciliatory, and truly scriptural spirit, and that, too, with blessed results. The Catholics pretended to find a creeping back, as Luther calls it, in this book of instruction, and began to rejoice aloud. When the little volume appeared publicly in 1528, and also during the previous years when a Latin sketch of it had been printed, different opinions were expressed concerning it. But the most singular attack upon the book was made by one of the evangelical party. A former friend of Melanchthon, John Agricola, rector in Eisleben, considered it unscriptural and leading to the papacy, if repentance was derived from the law and not from the gospel. This dispute made so much noise that the elector considered himself obliged to arrange a meeting in Torgau between Agricola on one side and Melanchthon, Luther, and Bugenhagen on the other. It was held in November 1527. Agricola could easily be refuted from the scriptures, however, he was a man obstinately wedded to his own opinion, who, as it is well known, stirred up this very matter ten years after in the most violent manner, at which time he made use of the most daring expressions, such as, Moses deserves the gallows. But this antinomian spirit, which was manifested by the ultra-evangelical party from time to time, was refuted by Luther in the most powerful and conclusive manner. Melanchthon refers to this and refutes it in a number of writings. In the summer of 1527, the university was removed to Jena because the plague had broken out in Wittenberg. When Melanchthon had finished his first visitation tour, he continued to lecture in Jena, and wrote against the Anabaptists, who were also carrying on their sectarianism in various parts of Saxony. In the autumn of 1528, he made his second visitation tour into Thuringia, together with Myconius and Minius. End of chapter 8